Welcome to the History and Physical, the official podcast of In Training, the online magazine for medical students. We're your hosts, Kevin Wong, Amol Donker, and Rohit Kakade. As the healthcare landscape evolves in the coming years, how will academic medicine adapt? And what do these tectonic shifts in health policy mean for medical students? This week on the H&P, we're joined by Dr. Athol Grover, the Chief Public Policy Officer of the AAMC. Dr. Grover leads the public policy, strategy, and outreach efforts that advance the work of the academic medicine community. He talks about the pact made between the government and academic medical centers to support medical graduate training. Why so much innovation can come from medical colleges and what students can do to advocate for the future. Welcome, Dr. Grover. Thanks for having me. So to start off our interview, we'd like to first ask you how you got into advocacy. Um, A lot of times doctors or pre-med students um, or even med students don't really get involved with politics too often. Um, So we'd just like to hear about how you got involved with it and why you've continued on your path today as the public policy officer for the AAMC. Well, I'll give you the medium version, and uh, you can ask me about anything else that you want details on. But um, I grew up in a family that uh, included my dad, uh, who was an epidemiologist and uh, trained in public health at at Johns Hopkins, where where you were. And uh, so sort of had this... uh, the discussions around the house about uh, health and, and society's responsibility uh, in healthcare. Um, I think that was something that uh, I sort of took with me to college and even throughout college and med school, working uh, in a lab at the National Institutes of Health during my summers and, and often winters. Knew I was interested in science, I knew I wanted to think about science and, and medicine from a, a broader societal perspective. Didn't really know how I was going to apply it. Um, but uh, from the time I went to med school, Uh, In the early 90s at GW, uh, there was a lot of discussion in Washington going on around healthcare policy with the Clinton healthcare reform effort. And so that got me even more interested, gave us opportunities to get engaged in the process uh, at that point as part of the student body at GW. And uh, when I went out to California to do my residency in primary care internal medicine, um, still had that interest and was really interested in the work of academic health centers. Uh, and their tripartite missions um, of uh, research, education, and clinical care, uh, and was interested in the intersection of policy and those missions. The challenge is it's hard to do federal policy from uh, California. And I decided to come back to Baltimore to do a fellowship at Hopkins in health services research and uh, worked with Barbara Starfield there, did a lot of work on primary care, but then also a lot more work with a guy named Jerry Anderson, who was a health economist, and uh, really moved into the health economics uh, and public policy realm with him, looking at policies that affected the financing of academic centers. And uh, from there, you know, I I had some time in the federal government. I did some work in consulting, um, in in healthcare finance, uh, and have been at AAMC for the last nine years and have steadily moved from doing health services research to inform policy to trying to really help create some of those policies, both on the regulatory side with the executive branch as well as with Congress. Uh, And um, over time, we've expanded that work to include uh, advocacy and communications and and some other roles here uh, from an administrative standpoint that I have at AAMC. But uh, what really interests me is on a day-to-day basis, how do we create policies that improve the health of the public uh, and help our, our institutions in academic medicine meet that goal? 
Fantastic. So, given that sort of, you know, the changing landscape of the healthcare system today and the sort of shifts in medicine that are happening as a consequence of, like, the Affordable Care Act and other notable changes in medicine today, how do you think that medical schools and medical education will have to adapt in the coming years? So what do you see as some of the main drivers of change and some of the ways that they, that uh, institutions like the AAMC and medical schools can respond to those changes? Well, I, I think, um, you know, from a professional education standpoint, medicine is, is fairly unique in that we are not only about classroom learning and the theoretical, but really we have a large practicing population of physicians and of healthcare professionals within our medical schools and our teaching hospitals and, and schools of health professions. So if you think about how uh, a lawyer uh, gets educated in law school, I'm doing a lot of classroom time, less clinical hands-on stuff. We're very different in schools of medicine. And so what we actually see happening is that uh, because academic medical centers, our faculty, our hospitals deliver about a fifth of all the patient care in the country, um, they are deeply immersed in all the changes that are going on as a result of the Affordable Care Act and also just as a result of uh, kind of constant pressures on healthcare spending in the United States. So we're uh, sort of uniquely situated to not only be part of the actual clinical transformation of healthcare, but to be training uh, the next generation of physicians in that setting. And at any given time, we've got uh, almost 90,000 medical students now, but 120,000 clinical faculty in our med schools and another 120,000 uh, physicians in training and residencies or fellowships. So we're a big uh, piece of the healthcare footprint. And um, gives us the ability to not only shape the system, but shape the future people who are going to lead that system. I would also say that um, our institutions, because they are so closely linked between hospitals, physicians, and other pieces of the healthcare system, have really been able to lead in a lot of the uh, innovative work that's been uh, funded and, and spurred by the by the ACA. So, if you look at the pioneer ACOs, for instance, those. Um, ACOs that are really on the cutting edge and able to take risk uh, for caring for populations. Uh, we're a plurality of, of uh, those programs. And in fact, the most successful pioneers uh, have been academic medical centers like Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx and, and Partners Healthcare in Boston. So we actually think that not only are, are we reacting uh, to the need to train physicians differently, but we're also leading that change in American medicine. That, that's very interesting um, that you mentioned how uh, the field of academic medicine is a, such a powerful cohort. Um, but a lot of times, from the lay people's perspective, um, they view a lot of academic medicine, professors of medicine, to be kind of existing in an ivory tower and not really understanding. Um, constantly, whether on Fox News or CNN, um, you always see physicians that are brought on as examples of people who oppose uh, medical reform or who oppose um, any changes to the medical system itself, something about how they are a, a, how the system itself reduces the level of quality of care they can uh, they can provide to their patients. Um, how does the AMC or your role as public policy um, balance out those views between I guess some of the outliers um, and medicine versus um, the general body of the AMA or the AA, um, the AAMC? Well, again, I think we're very lucky in that we have true systems of care in our institutions in many cases. They've been, you know, hospitals and physicians working together for decades or in some cases over a century. 
And that gives us the ability to, um, in some ways, I, I think you could argue that academic clinicians have been uh, somewhat separated from the daily grind of American healthcare because we are able to cross-subsidize a lot of um, the, the work that we do that loses money uh, in our academic institutions um, because we're so big. And so whether that means protecting time for our faculty to do research, clinical research, health services research, or whether that means uh, we are the, the safety net for the uninsured and one of the few providers out there that actually still cares for Medicaid patients. Uh, we're able to do that because we can shift finances around. Uh, and that's one of the things that's really challenging in this environment is that we're certainly concerned that with um, you know cuts that have come from the ACA, but really almost another $100 billion in cuts over 10 years that have come from subsequent legislation that affect um, Medicare reimbursement, our ability to cross-subsidize is, is really becoming um, very difficult. But I would still say overall we're at an intersection of higher education and healthcare where people generally want to do the right thing. And uh, when we were engaged in discussions around the ACA, uh, we were one of the first organizations to come out when we finally had legislative language in the House and Senate uh, to officially endorse it. We helped uh, pass the legislation, uh, met with um, uh, the president uh, in the Roosevelt Room with uh, a half dozen of our members just a couple of weeks before the final passage. Uh, and the AAMC was was fully supportive of anything that would ensure another 30 million people. And while there were certainly um, challenges thrown from either people who wanted to see a, a, a much more sweeping change to the healthcare system and uh, universal coverage or um, a single payer, or whether it was folks on uh, the other side of the aisle who said, you know, we, we don't believe the government ought to have uh, this much of a hand in, in intervening in healthcare. What we said was, we take care of these patients every day. And any step towards ensuring as many of them as possible. And we're still going to have 30 million people uninsured 10 years from now, but we'll be half the way there. And I think we saw that as the right thing to do. Were there things in the ACA that we disagreed with? For instance, not actually providing uh, sufficient resources to train enough uh, physicians and other health professionals to care for this expanding population, for an aging population? Yeah. Uh, in a normal political environment, what we would do is go back and say, let's let's tweak this. Let's fix the things that were mistakes that were either honestly drafting mistakes uh, that weren't fixed or fix things where the president uh, and his administration have gotten the policies wrong as they've implemented them, uh, as we've seen with things like readmissions that, that don't account for patients um, you know, living in poverty and, and being more severely ill. So uh, I think um, in our institutions, there our, our individuals are really motivated by doing the right thing, and we are a large enough enterprise in most cases to be able to, to help blunt some of the you know, rapid changes uh, that are happening with reimbursement on the outside and yet really redesigning care from, from the inside. Fantastic. Thank you. So one of the issues you referenced, and one issue I know that would be particularly interesting for our viewers and listeners here, is the topic of funding for graduate medical education. So I was wondering, what are your thoughts generally on this topic, and how do you see, what are some of the solutions that you see going forward to really resolve it? Graduate medical education broadly sort of encompasses a lot of the activities that uh, occur in an academic health center. Um, and 
in fact, you know, if you think about the training of, of physicians after they graduate from medical school in our institutions, um, it, it really involves not just sort of the time that uh, trainees put into it and their sweat equity uh, and, and long um, study uh, to become independently practicing physicians and the time of the faculty, but it also means that you've got to have uh, a whole set of uh, educational infrastructure and the ability to train physicians in everything. So even as a primary care physician, um, I rotated through uh, a level one trauma center at San Francisco General. I'm never going to be a trauma surgeon, uh, and I don't like blood because I'm an internist. But, you know, it's a very valuable experience. I spent a month on the liver transplant service, so I knew what it was like for the hepatologists, the transplant surgeons, and the clinical pharmacists to have to care for these really sick individuals that I was eventually going to see at some spectrum or some progression of their disease in my practice. So, so we're really talking about the need to support that whole enterprise and also to the research and discovery that goes on uh, in academic medicine. When Medicare was first enacted in the 60s, there were, uh, the payment system was different for hospitals, but even within the enacting legislation and in the, the accompanying conference reports, what Congress said was that we recognize that the quality of care in, in teaching hospitals and the services they provide are unique. And though those costs might be a little more, we ought to be supporting those activities and supporting the training of residents to the extent that it is uh, a fair share from the Medicare perspective. Fast forward to the 1980s when we went to a prospective payment system. What Congress said was, if we're only going to pay every hospital, then if you have teaching hospitals that are training physicians and other healthcare professionals, if they're providing that level one trauma unit and a burn unit, if they're providing, you know, unique subspecialty care to, uh, to children and adults, we want to support those higher costs as well. So they created two different payment streams. One's called a direct graduate medical education payment stream. And that really helps support the cost of training residents, uh, which if you add it up is about $16 billion a year for all the residents and fellows. Medicare makes just over $3 billion a year in support for their share of those payments. And in fact, that share has not kept up with inflation, so it's probably an underpayment of its share. And then there's another payment that people often get confused and start adding in to the support for residencies, which is indirect medical education. And that's another pot of money, which really is to support the higher costs of care for uh, severely ill patients that we can't measure through claims data, and also those services that nobody pays for explicitly, like trauma. So even though Congress set up that system in the 1980s with the new DRG uh, payments to hospitals, in 1997, when we were facing a budget crisis, and when we were convinced that managed care was really going to change the world, health maintenance organizations or HMOs were going to um, reduce access to specialty care, that uh, everything was going to be um, really focused on primary care, and that people were convinced nobody would ever get sick. Uh, Congress basically froze that support for graduate medical education uh, in 1997. And so for 17 years now, what we've uh, had to deal with is the fact that Medicare hasn't been willing to pay for its share of the costs of training as it historically has made that commitment to doing. At the same time, we have been able to grow training positions for, um, uh, for residencies and fellowships uh, a small amount because, again, I mentioned we cross-subsidize all of our missions. So we take money that we make from private payers uh, for clinical care and are able to 
um, reinvest that into the training of, of physicians as well as in, into research. As those clinical margins decline, what we found is that our institutions are no longer able to grow those residency programs without Medicare paying for its share uh, of those costs. So uh, we have been uh, trying to convince, convince Congress for the last several years that they ought to uh, lift that freeze on support for residencies. Um, you know, it's challenging in this budget environment. I think also during the ACA, we saw people who were enamored of the idea that we could stop people from ever getting sick. And the truth is that um, if we do a good job investing in primary care and prevention, we should be doing that. Uh, but our challenge then becomes we end up delaying illness more often than we end up preventing it forever. And we also uh, have been extremely fortunate in that through funding for the National Institutes of Health, National Cancer Institute, um, and, and other support for discovery, we've been able to really reduce death rates from heart disease by 50%, from cerebrovascular disease uh, by almost the same amount. And so our patients are living longer with these diseases and they end up needing the care of their primary care physicians as well as their neurologists and neurosurgeons and cardiologists and orthopedic surgeons and endocrinologists and everybody else. So, you know, our, our concern right now is that um, at a minimum, um, the public insurance systems in this country ought to be paying their share of the cost to invest in uh, a, uh, a, a set of uh, providers, physicians and otherwise that are going to care for the public. So speaking on the whole role of physician um, GME funding, um, one of the questions, and we saw this uh, through through a big push through both the AMA medical student section, is to get the word out there to write to the congressman. Um, but for you personally, what do you think are the greatest benefits of involving medical students or in, in advocating for this improvement in funding for their training? Or do you think that there are other methods of um, providing advocacy at the educational level? I think part of this is um, the need to educate Congress and policymakers. Even the president's budget, for instance, ended up cutting $10 billion uh, in its proposal this year uh, in support for GME. Um, they created some grant programs that would amount to uh, much less of an investment. Uh, and so I think even, even within the administration, there's education that needs to happen. But certainly with members of Congress who don't uh, know firsthand what it's like to go through the medical education and training process, um, I think that education also includes people understanding that when you get an MD, it doesn't mean you're a physician ready to go out and practice, that a large portion of um, our medical learning happens during uh, residency training and, and in fellowships in some cases. So the education part is, is definitely very, very important. I think clarifying uh, for people what Medicare uh, is supporting uh, under the title of graduate medical education is also important. I think who delivers that message, um, the more, the better. Um, and we certainly work with the leadership of our institutions, our, our deans, our CEOs of our health systems, um, other leaders on the faculty. But I think that um, in some cases, these messages can really be best delivered by folks who are living with the ramifications of current policy, and that would be medical students. So one of the things that um, when we really began to realize the depth of the physician shortages that were going to occur because of the aging of the population primarily. Uh, back in 2006, we asked our medical schools to really look at trying to expand capacity and enrollment. We're on track to meet the 
an expansion, but the other part of the recommendation was for Congress to lift the freeze so that we could train all those people uh, that we're trying to educate in our medical schools. So I, I think really getting them to understand um, how the, the MD enrollment and GME mismatch is beginning to occur is really important, uh, and nobody's better at delivering that message that, than people who are thinking about applying for a residency uh, in the next couple of years. So um, we would be um, thrilled if, if we could get this message out to uh, medical students and people who are interested in going to medical school in the future. So on that note, uh, a really prominent intersection of medicine and public policy in the past few weeks has been the nomination of Dr. Vivek Murthy for Surgeon General. And I highlight this case because it seems like a sort of show how it can, at least as I understand it, it might be difficult to balance the roles of being, you know, a physician in a sense, a objective sort of role, a scientist role in that sense, versus being a policy advocate and taking stances on sometimes controversial issues. So first off, I was wondering, what are your thoughts on the controversy surrounding Dr. Murthy and the NRA? And have you ever encountered similar tensions in your roles as a physician and policy advocate? You know, I, I think uh, Washington is in a particularly um, uh, unpleasant state right now. And I think that in other periods of time, you wouldn't see the politicization of every single issue that comes up, whether that's in a confirmation hearing for an appointment uh, or on day-to-day -day policy issues. I, I think we're just in a really hyper-partisan, hyper-politicized environment. And um, in some cases, you know, the president could, could nominate someone who on the surface would be uh, completely reasonable for a position, and you'll have interest groups that will want to disagree for one reason or another. Um, I, I think that, you know, as a, as a physician, most of us go through training uh, asking certain kind of screening questions. And, I, you know, you know that if you uh, go through pediatrics, one of the things you want to ask about is, you know, do you have it done in the house? Um, that's part of medical training. And I, and I think um, we've seen issues, uh, controversy spring up around state legislatures around this issue where, you know, the legislature may not want physicians to, to ask those questions. Uh, I, I think in those cases where there's a, a real public health rationale and it's part of being a good physician, you have to stand up and make that case. I, 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 the NRA issue is, is a broader one than I'm really prepared to address, but I, I, I just think that most of it comes down to being in a very, very hyper-partisan uh, environment. I, I think for myself personally, you know, as I mentioned, I work for people who, uh, by and large, really want to do the right thing uh, at that intersection between healthcare and education. Uh, and, and research. And so um, I, I have never found myself uh, being forced to advocate for a policy that I didn't believe in my gut was the right thing to do. Uh, and we are governed by a board of directors that um, has a strong interest in doing what we can do as academic medicine to advance the health of the public. People may not always agree with us, uh, and you know they may not be ready to take all the actions that we recommend, but um, I haven't been in a position where I, I felt like uh, I had to do something that wasn't true to my own professional or personal beliefs, uh, but part of that has to do with my choice of, of who I'm working for now, and I happen to really believe that 
the membership of the double AMC uh, is is acting in the public's interest by and large and, and wants to do the right thing to advance healthcare. Great. Well, thanks for that really insightful response on a topic that I know is controversial to both medicine and politics in your role. Um, so I guess we'd rather move on to some more lighthearted questions to kind of wrap up our interview. Um, I think the first one that we would like to ask is um, a would you rather question. So the first one that we have is would you rather have uncontrollable and random bouts of jazz hands or severe restless leg syndrome? For example, during one of your meetings with a politician or a change maker in D.C., instead of shaking the hands, would you rather have five seconds of legitimate jazz hands or would you rather have uh, situations where you're basically running a marathon in your sleep? Kevin, I'll take the jazz hands for 500. Okay. <laughs> I can't wait to see you on C-SPAN sometime then. And the follow-up then is similar question, kind of similar vein to that. If you could, say, moderate a panel of any, you know, two or three people, living or deceased, past or present, real or fictional, really anyone, who would those people be? And what would your topic of discussion be for that? Man, <laughs> people don't usually give me that opportunity. They just tell me I'm going to moderate a panel and, and, and I get them. Um, you know, I think the tough thing on that is, is who are the three people that you'd want to bring together? I, I, I could think of um, uh, individuals, but uh, what a wacky question. All right, I'm going to, I'm going to go with um, Clinton, Roosevelt, and Lincoln. And, and, and I, I think for me, the, the question would be, uh, how did we get here? Um, and how do we dig ourselves out of the situation we seem to be in now when it comes to public policy, where everything is about posturing and about um, not letting things happen? What happens when you really have an agenda in a tough political environment and you're trying to do the right thing? How do you make that happen? Uh, and I would say Lincoln, because, um, hey, you've seen the movie, you've read the book. Uh, that's a heavy lift. I think FDR at a time when, again, you're, you're looking at a nation that doesn't want to spend money and yet you've got to convince them to invest in the future of a nation. How do you do that? Uh, and uh, Clinton, just because uh, he's the more recent figure and, and he's always entertaining. Wow. Now that is definitely a panel discussion that I would not want to miss. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Gover, for your time and for your insightful answers to our questions. Um, we'd love to have you back another time or whenever you have anything that you'd love to promote on behalf of the AMC. Thank you so much. My pleasure, guys. Look forward to watching both of your careers with great interest. All right. Appreciate it. Bye. H&P is a member of Vocalis, a podcast network for medical students. Please listen to our partners at vocalisnetwork.wix.com slash listen.